I'm Nicole Antoinette, and this is Real Talk Radio, a podcast filled with honest conversations about everything. This is a values-led show, grounded in honesty, connection, justice, and joy. And with those values to guide us, Real Talk Radio does things a bit differently. Here, I'll show you. So first, it's a 100% listener-funded show. That means no ads and no sponsors. Also, all of our guests get paid because I strongly believe in paying people for their time, their energy, their expertise, and everything that they come here to share with us. And higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. That's just one of the ways that we put our value of justice into action. So the funding to create this show and pay all the guests, as well as me and my sound engineer, Adam Day, hi Adam, comes entirely from our Patreon community, which operates on a shame-free sliding scale that allows each community member to support from within their means. That sliding scale, that's another way that we put our value of justice into action. If you enjoy this show, I bet you'll love the community. We have topic-specific community discussions, share recommendations and resources with each other, and I host live events like our end-of-month journaling circles and small group Google Hangouts. If you're the kind of person who's curious about what goes on behind the scenes of a small business like mine, I also create and share a detailed and super transparent, like down to the dollar, monthly business and money report, which also functions as my small biz Q&A where I answer any and all questions on that topic from folks within the community. Our community also gets access to exclusive bonus episodes, the first chance to sign up for my mastermind groups and live retreats, including our small end-of-year virtual retreat on December 19th and 20th, and more. And no matter where on our sliding scale your monthly pledge falls, you still get access to all of the same events and bonuses. That's another way that my value of justice comes into play, specifically economic justice. I mean, why should your financial means be the only determining factor in whether or not you can access the products and services you want? It shouldn't. And in our community, it doesn't. So if you love this show, and if you want to make a real-time vote with your dollars to help keep it going, all while meeting the wonderful, like-minded people who are already in our community, you can come over and join us at patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. That's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. We'd love to have you. And now, on to the show. All right, friends, here we go. I am joined today by the lovely Laura McCowan, who is hi. here to talk about. Yes, hi, 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 hi. I love that. Just jump right in. It's great. I love it. No, that's, I'm serious. I'm, that's how I feel. I'm excited. So, yes. Um, well, hi, Laura. Hi. So happy to be with you. It's so funny to start a conversation after you've been talking for like 30 minutes. <laughs> I know. I know. I feel like that's that's the thing that before I started making podcasts, just listening to podcasts that I never thought about. And now Mm. I often think about when I'm listening to other shows, like I wonder what they were talking about right before they pressed record. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yes. Agree. So as a fellow sober lady, I am really grateful that we are going to have this conversation. Yeah, me too. So to get us started, I would love for you to introduce yourself uh, to anyone maybe who didn't hear our first conversation or who doesn't know your work, who you are, what you do, what you love. Basically, what are a few things that you want us to know about Laura? Okay, so I am uh, an author of We Are the Luckiest, which is a memoir that came out this year, seems like 64 years ago. My God, was Uh, that this year? Yes, it was January. I was like flying around doing book tour events and hugging people and yeah, crying with them (laughs) for three months before this happened. Oh my gosh. Uh, That honestly, if you would have asked me when your book came out, I would have said like sometime early last year. Yeah. That's like, that feels okay. Yeah. We're in like the 900th month of COVID. So, okay. Yes. (laughs) Yes. So uh, I'm an author. I, I uh, am also a teacher. I've developed several courses for online, uh, for personal development, online courses for personal development and sobriety. Uh, I had a whole different career before that, though. For 15 years, I worked in marketing and advertising. I, I got sober in 2014, quit that career in 2016 after working at working towards it for a long time and uh, then made that leap then and started building this new thing that I'm, that I'm doing. And I have a daughter who's 11. I live uh, on the North shore of Boston. 
and I've been sober what now for six years. And yeah, I think those are the the things I love. I love words and sentences a lot. <laughs> I love. Uh, I forgot how much I loved music. It's so weird that like I'm a music music person, but certain things that I that I am they're just so much a part of who I am and who I love have dropped off this year, which is strange. Like music, listening to music, finding new music, and reading. Like I've read so little in 2020. Um, and I finally remembered that and it's like, oh, right. Like I just finished a novel. It was like one of the first novels I've read this year and listened to music that I had started listening to in January and February. I was like, oh my God, right. There I am. So this year has been a study in all things for me. Yeah. I feel like reading's pretty much the only thing I've been doing this year. I'm like very grateful for it. I don't know what Ugh. else. I don't know what else I have done this year. Mostly just read and rewatch things on Netflix that I've already watched. I feel like that has been my soothing of 2020. Reading is like I don't feel I don't know about you, but I don't look at it like I do watching Netflix or I mean don't get me wrong, I love watching shows. But it is I have never regretted a single moment of reading. Like it feels like the the time like time perfectly well spent. <laughs> oh yeah, I agree. I feel like that particularly became even more true for me once I started giving myself permission to not finish books that I wasn't loving. Oh. That like there's so yes. many amazing books. Like the first world problem of my life is that I'm never going to be able to read all the things that I want to read That's if I'm right. like 10 to 15% into something and I'm not really loving it. I'm out. Yeah, I'm so with you. I I arrived at that a few years ago and it is a it's a good philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned being six years sober. Congrats mm -hmm. on that. You. Do you celebrate soberversaries? Is that a thing that you really mark that's important to you? Um, not a whole, I feel sort of strange around them. I don't know. It's not so no, I celebrate them. I acknowledge them. You know, I know the day, but I don't make a big deal of them in the sense that I don't know. The, the the everyday stuff it sounds like very cliché, but I'm really grateful every single day that I'm sober. I don't forget that I'm sober. You know, I don't it's not like a maybe an anniversary of, you know, with a partner or a birthday where you just like it comes around you're like, "Oh, right." And then you sort of reflect on the year and then it goes away. It's just so much a part of my daily consciousness and gratitude and that I, I don't really think of it as, as too big of a deal, but I know, I know, I know how, so, you know, I know how much time it's been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was reflecting the other day because next year will be 10 years for me, which seems wow. like a really wild amount of wow. time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was really reflecting on who I was you know, 10 years ago, right? Like at that time. And this, I, I wrote about this, well, at the time that this is published, right? It will have been, you know, a month or so since, but I recently wrote about this in my like blog newsletter thing uh, about that the person that I was the day that I decided to quit drinking and the day that that stuck and that that happened for me, there was no way that that person was strong enough to stay sober for almost 10 years. And sort of the <sighs> reflection that that was true and I've done it anyway. So that must mean that you learn how to do the thing by doing the thing. And it was like, uh -oh. like, I know that that's true, but some, something was really powerful for me in the past couple of weeks of reflecting on the fact that, oh yeah, you actually don't have to be strong enough on day one to get to year 10. You can't be. There's no way. Have you heard the quote, uh, let me fall if I must fall, the one I become will catch me? Mm, no, but that's lovely. It's like that, right? I, I couldn't, I didn't, that was really the only way I did get sober was that I stopped promising that I would even do it tomorrow. I couldn't, and, and the idea of forever, let alone a year, was so filled me with so much despair and anger and <laughs> frustration. And no, I, I I love that reflection because it's my experience also. Mm -hmm. It's it's made me think too. You know, so when I 
when we go back nine and a half years, almost 10 years, the internet was a really different place. Like I think just Mm -hmm. about specifically what you are offering, right, to like the sober community. None of that stuff existed or, you know, Instagram was in its baby stages. Maybe there were alternatives to AA. Maybe there maybe some of that stuff did exist, but I certainly wasn't aware of it. I didn't have a single sober friend when I quit drinking. It had never been modeled for me. The only narrative that I knew was, you know, you quit drinking if you have to right in quotes because of your problem. Also, in quotes, right. And I'm interested. I've been thinking about the benefits and then potential like shadow side of the popularity that the like sober curious movement has gained like i think that would have been really helpful for me you know when i first quit at least that it was a thing that was somewhat normalized at least somewhere yeah. and that there were other people that were doing it but i i also think and I, I know that you've written about this too, the like hashtag sober is sexy, right? Like looking yeah. at that feed can sometimes make you feel bad because sobriety doesn't always feel sexy. And I, I'd love yeah. for us to sort of start if you want to talk about that. Oh, sure. I love this. So, well, you're right there. Uh, 10 years ago, I, I wasn't even, sobriety wasn't even anywhere near my mind. I, I never imagined that I would have to get sober, which is hilarious because I was, problematically drinking from the beginning. But five years, six years ago, when I got sober, there wasn't much. And that's not just like, I know that's true, because it's not like I had been looking around, I would say for a couple years. And it's not that it's not like, I really just think that because my perception, like, it's like, it's not like, you know, when you go to buy the, the Toyota Prius, and you all of a sudden, then you've decided and then all of a sudden you see two Priuses everywhere. It's not like I didn't, I really didn't think those things existed until I had it on my mind. It's like, no, that re- that shit really didn't exist because I was looking for it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know. And, and, and I also know that cause it was one of the things that was, that occurred to me as like, this is really messed up that the only place that I can go to talk about this or see other people who are experiencing this is in a AA meeting and it's private and anonymous and very hush hush, right? Or read a memoir. So that's true. And it has changed significantly. Uh, social media is, you know, a big part of that. Uh, but I also think there's just been a shift uh, in willingness to talk about things. I think things like Brene Brown talking about shame and you know, as a global conversation, and I could go on and on about why, but it's not really what you're asking. I think the upside, I think overall, net, it's a positive thing. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. That, you know, for sure. But that doesn't mean there aren't some things that are not great. Uh, I think anytime something is Instagramized or hashtagged, it starts to lose its authenticity in a way. So sobriety used to be only for people who had a problem, right? You didn't really get, like you said, you didn't get sober unless you had a problem. There were people who didn't drink, but they didn't talk about that. It was still kind of, they were still kind of socially outcasted in a way, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it wasn't cool not, not to drink. And now there's a, gr- there's a large gray area of a public gray area. There's a public conversation of that gray area between, you know, I, I don't have any substance use disorder and I have like pretty good one. And the reality is there is a huge gray area. Most people wouldn't qualify as being an alcoholic who could stand to not drink. I mean, I think everyone's life gets better if they don't drink, but, but now there's a conversation for the, for that population, which is awesome because it can interrupt people. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's an addictive drug, right? And it can interrupt people before they get to that place. Uh, and I also think, you know, I, mean, I could go on and on about why it, it's better for people to not check out with alcohol and not use it as it's as some sort of benign substance, which it's not. So that is 
great. What it's what the difficulty of that is for people who really like me, it can make sobriety look easy. It can make it look cute. It can make it look like a highlight reel, you know? And it's not. I mean, for me, it was the hardest thing I have ever, ever done. It was my hero's journey. It was a years long walk through the dark, right? Mm -hmm. So it can downplay a lot of those things. And again, overall, I think that's not that prolific of a consequence or negative. I think it's overall, it's, it's great that look, if we can even make a dent in the largesse of the mommy wine culture and the booze, booze is like the duct tape for life culture. And, and with that comes some negative side effects. Fine. (laughs) Fine. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. I think the reason that I asked wasn't necessarily because I thought, you know, either we weren't on the same page or, or something like that. But I just I think it's a really helpful reminder that doing a hard thing, if it's hard for you, is hard. Yeah, and it doesn't right. mean that it's not worth it. It doesn't mean that you aren't going to feel better or net positive or any of those things. But I think that Sometimes when our only representation of something is what we're being shown online, particularly yeah. if what we're if, particularly if we're being shown that thing by someone who's trying to like sell us a lifestyle and this extends <laughs> beyond sobriety, right? Like of yes, course, right. That, you know, for me I was like really imagined that it would be this like yoga and green juice like white kind of like ephemeral fairyland and it wasn't <laughs> for me. What? And a lot of the times I felt bored or angry or, you know, and there was, there's, and I am enough into it now that I don't bump on this anymore, but I definitely did for years of what's wrong with me that like sobriety doesn't feel how I thought that it was going to feel. And that was true. And it was still the right choice. That's right. It's very well said, very well said. And I mean, like you said, it extends far beyond sobriety. There are no, there are no shortcuts really, right. For anything worth having, anything worth having, I, as far as I'm concerned is difficult. It's going to be difficult in different ways. And that, that's what makes it valuable too. I'm so glad it was as much of a struggle as it was for me because it changed me cellularly. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in talking a little bit about how you, and maybe this, I'm sure this is different, you know, year one or two of sobriety versus now, but the Mm -hmm. question of navigating other people, right? Mm -hmm. Like in Mm -hmm. sobriety, because like the overall reason that I wanted to talk to you is this question of like, how do you stay sober, right? Which I know we could probably talk for many hours and there's a lot of different facets. And so, but I think that one of the one of the questions at least that i have gotten a lot so let me just like you know speak to that point people who are sober curious or are interested a lot of the questions or fears that i have received come down to but what do i do at the you know work party what about the fact that my significant other or the person that i lived with or you know whatever that they're not sober or like those sort of questions about other people and yeah. so i'm interested like obviously i can ask you specifics within that but is there anything that pops to mind there like a story that you want to share or something that's been helpful for you in terms of like prioritizing your sobriety when it comes to navigating other people oh gosh there's so much um it is now having worked with thousands of people, you know, who are trying to get sober and going through it myself, it is the number one issue that comes up for people, whether it's partners, you know, the person you're most intimate with and alcohol being sort of the third party in your relationship, which it often is for a lot of people or just family, friends, coworkers. So I just want to acknowledge that it's, it is the, the sticky part for most people that either keep them drinking, even if they don't have a, even if they would never qualify as having a quote unquote problem, right? But they just don't like drinking. They don't like how it feels to them. They don't like what it does to them. That They'll still keep drinking because of that, mm-hmm. because it's too uncomfortable socially 
and the fear of disconnect from their groups and their relationships is too great. And, and it's not even imagined a lot of times, you know, it's not like they're just imagining it. There's real pressure. There's real social currency to drinking. So I just want to acknowledge that as something that's true. What comes to mind first to me is alcohol gives us this alcohol in relationships, gives us this false sense of connection. There is some realness to it. Like, I'm not going to say that bonding over drinks with when I was in my 20s with my coworkers wasn't something that actually ended up bringing us closer in a way, right? I'm not going to pretend that there's no, because it does lower in your, your inhibitions. It does sort of, for me, it, it softened my insecurities and did all kinds of things to allow me to do the things that I didn't have the tools, didn't think I had the tools for, or I actually didn't have the tools for in terms of making connections. And so that part was very real, but the problem on the other side of that is that you actually don't withstand the awkwardness of growing Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the awkwardness of becoming intimate with people, right? And so your relationships and your connections, it's like they're plants that are growing in gravel or something like they can grow for a while and they can be even appear to bloom and be strong and, and go and, and, you know, lush, but the ground isn't, it's not sustainable enough to hold what you really want. That's, that's what I have learned. So this is a long way of saying what, what has been helpful, what, what I encourage people to do is examine the way, what they think alcohol is really doing for them and for the relationships and to really question that because a lot of it is myth. A lot of it is romanticizing and I hate to say it, but sometimes alcohol, a a lot of times alcohol allows us to float on the surface of relationships, even very, very important ones. And my experience is that there is a period of recalibration, a definite period of recalibration in, in your relationships once you, once alcohol's eliminated, but that recalibration if you if you go through it and you go through it with other people equals the the types of intimacy and relationship that I wanted and I think that everyone really wants that's what we we all really want so there's that's like the relational aspect of it and then just sort of on the tactical standpoint I have learned that people we think people are thinking about us and what we're doing so much more than they actually are like this goes for everything, but especially goes with, goes with, for alcohol. People don't care as much as we think they do. And that's what I started to notice. I thought that everyone was going to ask me why I wasn't drinking. And then I was annoyed that they weren't because eventually I wanted to tell them (laughs) and they weren't telling, they weren't, nobody was asking me once in a while I'll get asked, you know, or I would get asked. And we plan for these situations that are mostly in our minds um, because we have, we have ideas about what it means to not drink. Right. And that's so much more to do with our own okayness with ourselves than anything else. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think all of that is really useful. And I mean, like any aspect of this that we're talking about, there's going to be nothing, no advice, no story, no point of relatability that applies to everyone because everybody's situations are different. Like I remember even for me in quitting drinking, there were people in my life that I did lose because mm-hmm. they couldn't accept that that was the case. And it's it's easy now to look back and be like, well, they just weren't the right fit for me. But it was incredibly painful at the time. Oh, it's brutal. And, you know, I, I think what you said about alcohol being the third person in or like the third kind of party in an intimate relationship, that really Mm -hmm. feels very relevant for me. And that was true of the partner that I had, the relationship that I was in, the romantic relationship that I was in when I got sober. And I mean, you know, we eventually wound up splitting up and I, for many reasons, but that was definitely one of them. And, you know, I've been, I've been reflecting on what I needed from the people that I was close with at different phases of sobriety. Like my partner now does drink, but very, very infrequently. And I mean, like a beer with dinner every couple of weeks. Right. And that's completely fine with me. My only boundary around that is that I don't like being like kissed or breathed on, right? Mm -hmm, Like mm -hmm. in that, and it's, but that's been like very, very, very easy to navigate. And while that makes me very comfortable, I personally wouldn't be comfortable in that level of partnership with someone who does drink a lot. That would be an issue for me and like a point of incompatibility. And I'm interested if you are willing to talk about what like how that functions in like your current partnership. Yeah. Oh, this is so interesting because I have dated people. I have dated people in sobriety who drank a lot and that zero worked for me. I I don't imagine the universe where it would ever work. And it's not because I felt threatened, like my sobriety felt threatened. It was like, I don't want someone who, I don't want all the things that comes with drinking a lot because I know what those things are. And I especially don't want the level of, uh, there's a lack of presence. Like I want someone full frontal, you know, I want, Mm -hmm. I want the full person. I don't even want a shade of them being like checked out. Uh, it's, it's not just unattractive to me. It's, it's like, um, there's a level of unease, just unease with that. So the way it functions in my partnership now is, is really interesting. When I met him, he drank, it was a drinker. I never, I've never seen him drink. But he tells me that he had a alcohol and even drugs was a pretty regular part of his life, but never, I don't think I'd never witnessed him, but I don't think he fell into sort of a problematic category uh, in terms of like, I don't think he would qualify as an alcoholic, but he, it was very regular. He's a big like music fan, lots of concerts, lots of drinking, lots of drugs. It just... It's part of his deal and the, and the friends that he hung out with. When he met me before we'd ever been intimate or like we started dating in the time of COVID. So it was this very slow roll into relationship, which was great. We had lots of talks and walks and, you know, stuff like that before, before we ever spent um, like say the night together. And he read my book two weeks uh, into dating and he read my book and he was like, I want to know what it's like to not drink or do drugs. Like, I don't think I've gone a period of more than a couple of weeks like that in my adult life. And he's 50. And so he just decided to do it. He didn't even tell me. And a couple, like 10, 10 days into it, he's like, I just want you to know, like, I read your book and it just seemed like, he's like, I've been waiting. Like, I've been ready to leave this behind as part of my life. And I, I left it behind and I'm 10 days into it. And I feel like I have a fucking superpower. Hmm. I was like, wow, okay, that's awesome. And he hasn't touched it since. And I keep, I kept like, at first I was a little nervous about that because for me, it was like, wait, I don't, I, this can't be about me, like doing it for me. If you're not ready to do that, like 100% that you can't do this for me because you'll resent me eventually. Right. Um, And sure, some of that is projecting my own junk onto him, but He's like, no, I, I have zero. This is nothing but good for me. It's the first time I have felt a hundred percent honest. Is the way he talks about it. I don't have any messes to clean up. I don't have any confusion about who I am, where I am, what I'm doing at all times. I feel clear, and I feel like this is exactly right. So 
my current partnership, there is, there's none of that. I didn't know that it would be that way going in. He's not, he wouldn't call himself sober. Right. But he just just chose like, this is what I'm choosing from here on out. And it is so, I love it, Nicole. I love that. It's not even a thing that enters our house. I love that. It's not a thing that I think about, consider, wonder, like, it's just not there. It's, it's, it's a whole level of a whole level of noise that's just not in our in our relationship. Yeah, that my my former spouse, my friend and former spouse, also uh, is sober, and I can really relate to that. That feeling of like it just doesn't exist. You like it don't have to. Exist. It doesn't. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So the last thing I want to ask about this before we move on to something else is, let's say someone is listening who is maybe like flirting with the idea of sobriety, right? Or like falls into that sober curious category and has either, you know, a romantic partner or even if it's like, you know, really close friends, like there's lots of different types of close relationships, of course, with um, someone with whom this isn't the case, right? Let's say they do drink and that's not something that they're looking to change. I know that, like you said, you've worked with thousands of people, right? In lots of different situations. Do you have any Thing, I, I like hesitate to use the word advice, but that's sort of what I'm asking. Like any advice or tips or anything for folks in that situation for potentially like how to start navigating that? Yes. So a lot of times we, people are not first honest with themselves about what alcohol is or drugs, we'll just talk about alcohol, is is really sort of in how it's impacting their lives, right? You kind of know it like, okay, I'm hungover again, don't really like it. Or maybe the consequences are bigger, right? But if you're just sober curious, like you're like, I wonder what my life would be like without alcohol. For whatever reason, I really, really recommend, this is a very specific prescription, <laughs> but I really, really recommend writing down your drinking, uh, your, your numbing history, starting as far back as you can remember. A lot of people, for me, it was food, right? And um, far, you know, long before there was alcohol, it was food. And and write down how you numbed out and what the consequences were to you, whether physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, whatever they were, and you know the age that you were. And do that for your for your life up until the present. It, it has a couple purposes. One, putting things down on paper is very alchemical. It does something. It makes them more real. It also stirs up your subconscious so that things that might be hidden to you reveal themselves. And it can sound like a scary exercise for a lot of people. I know when my when I was instructed to do this some time ago, I resisted it mightily because I didn't want to know, but you can do it. And it's really important to do it. And it, it will be helpful for this reason. When you go to your person, what I was going to say is a lot of people don't do is they don't talk to their partner or friend or whomever about what this thing is really doing to them. They don't talk about the reality of their internal sort of struggle or how long they've been struggling with it. Like I had been thinking about my drinking and wondering about my drinking and worried about my drinking since I was 17 years old. It was in every journal, but I couldn't have admitted that to myself. And I would have never admitted it to another person until I had to, right? having the courage to have that conversation does a couple things. One, it lets another person in on, and and you, you, by the way, when you do this, it doesn't have to be with, it doesn't have to be with the intent that you're going to stop drinking. It can just be a, a courageous conversation that you, that you need to have. I mean, you could think about it as like, if you were worried about being sick or you were having trouble in your relationship or whatever it is, you would bring it to a friend. Hopefully this is that type of conversation and it doesn't have to be for any reason other than I need to have a witness to this right now. And I'm not asking you for anything that I know of. I'm not 
making any proclamations. I'm not making, this isn't some sort of, you know, line in the sand. It's just, I need, I need someone to know the truth about how I feel about this. And that alone is, is a, is a huge step and it's, it will open doors, right. Mm -hmm. For, for further conversations, because so much of this is that we're afraid to have the conversation because it's like, if we say, I might have a problem with this thing. We think that it means, oh my God, I'm going to have to get sober. and I'm never going to drink again. And no one's ever going to let me in. We go like 6,000 steps down the line. It doesn't mean that you're allowed to explore sobriety. You're allowed to, to see what that, that looks like without saying you're going to do it forever. And if people are listening to this and they're like, I don't think there's one person I could have that conversation with. That's okay. Write it down on paper, right? Do the first step, right? And ask for that person to show up in your life. They might already exist and you just don't know it. It's probably a matter of fear, right? It's probably a matter of fear. Um, that's my, that's like, it might sound like a huge step to some, it may not sound like a, a horrible step to others, but that's my big advice is like normalize this conversation by having it <laughs> and, and entering it. And then, um, and then it can be something that you talk about, like you would talk about other things. Like there, it's so fascinating to me that this is a, one of those conversations that we are very afraid to have. So yeah, that's what I would say. I love that. I love the tangible nature of that. Yeah, when you first said the making the the numbing history, I felt a lot of resistance, right? So it's funny that right Mm -hmm. afterwards you named that that's how you felt. But Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate all of the context that you gave on that because, yeah, any conversation that can be normalized, it's at least like takes some of the power away from it or it takes some of the fear away from it. And I think a lot, not just in sobriety, but in general about sort of what you said about the fear of if I admit what's true, then, you know, X, Y, Z, catastrophizing, going really far Mm -hmm. into the future. And one of the things that's part of my ongoing, I call it like personal growth, I guess, or development is trying to open up, even if it's like an inch, like an inch more space in between being able to admit what's true, let what's true be true and having to do anything about it. And that I feel like has really saved me because for so long I didn't, I wasn't willing to admit the truth to myself about any number of different things because I'm like, oh, fuck, now I'm gonna have to do, you know, all of these uncomfortable things. And I, I remember when I started experimenting with like, can I just admit that that's true and then go back to my day? Right. Like, and yes. it, was, it was wild. I mean, eventually I did wind up doing things about it because in my well, experience, it takes on its own life. Right. Exactly. And, and you, you get to the point where it becomes less scary because you've named it. And then for me, the point when like the pain of the thing outweighs the fear of not doing the thing or, you know, whatever that is, that's yeah. when change happens. But being able to just open up some more space of it doesn't have to be binary. It's not like I do this no. and that means I have to do this forever. Like giving ourselves just more of a like emotional playground. It's such a that's such a brilliant concept. And I'm glad you brought that up. You don't have to do anything about it just because you face it. And and look, you kind of said this, I've kind of said this. If it it doesn't go away, nothing goes away because we decide we don't want to talk about it. And we pay for secrets in mightily. We pay for them. Um, if there's anything I know at this point in my life is that we don't get away with anything. Like the the truth lives in us and there is a price for holding on for not speaking it. There's a price for speaking it for sure. And there's a price for not speaking it. Both acts are a uh, 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 leap of faith. You just have to decide which one you're going to take. For me, I got to a point, a crisis point where I was going to die really, if I didn't tell the truth, but it doesn't have to be that dire, right? You can, you can, you can tell the truth and not do anything about it, right? Yeah, one of the reasons that I love having this conversation with you, like particularly singularly with you, is because our sobriety stories are quite different. Mm-hmm. And yet there's a lot of pair, there's a lot of emotional parallels in there. You know, even hearing you say that 
you were going to die if you didn't make this choice. That wasn't my story. And yet so much of what you're saying, I mean, or I guess that wasn't my story yet. You know what I mean? But yeah. something that something that I think about a lot, and I talked about this a lot around the time period of getting divorced, is this narrative of having to wait until like things are whatever we would consider to be rock bottom or until things are like mm. so bad. And I mean, sometimes that's just how it works out, right? Like it gets as bad sure. as it gets and that's, you right. know, but something that I think about a lot is that I actually like misery does like unsustainable misery doesn't have to be like the currency of change and that being willing to walk away from something that's good, but not great or harmful, but not killing me. Like those are all viable paths. Yes. They're not only viable. So, you know, one of the things that I've said that's in my book and I, it's, I, I said it many times is that the, this sort of normal question is this bad enough that I have to change, right? Whatever the relationship, the habit, is this bad enough that I have to change? And if it's not bad enough, then maybe not. And the question that we should be asking ideally is, is this good enough to stay the same? And then underneath all of that is this question, am I free? And, and for me, that was like, it was such an eye opening thing to realize how owned I was by drinking. Like it decided where I went, who I hung out with, all my plans, what was on my calendar, what wasn't on my calendar, how I I spent my days because I was either thinking about drinking or planning the, my next time drinking, even if it was four days from now and or recovering from drinking. And so there was, I had no autonomy. I, I had given up all my power, right? Freedom is going to mean something different to every person, but I think we all understand the concept of not being free, right? So it's a, it's a more accessible question and it, a deeper question to say, am I free in this behavior? Am I free having this thing in my life? So that's something else to consider too. Yeah. Because yeah, it doesn't have to look like despair. I mean, I, you said, you know, I wasn't at the point where I was going to die if I didn't tell the truth and start facing this thing, but I'm guessing you have been at that point for other reasons, not like you're physically going to die, but like spiritual death maybe, or unsustainable emotional pain. It's the same thing. You know, alcohol just happened to be the sort of invitation I had, but we all, it's not unique, right? It's not unique. Yeah. Yeah. And that series of questions that is this, you know, bad enough for me to change versus is it good enough to stay the same? Am I free? I, I mean, I cannot tell you the extent to which I have returned to those questions of yours, you know, mm. over over the years. I mean, I, also, I feel like I underlined your entire book. I, the, I also realized when you were talking that because I read an early copy of it, and that's maybe why I think that it was longer ago than it was. But uh, that, <laughs> right. No, no, that's true. You probably read it like a good nine months before anyone else did. But and I say this, you know, and I'm we're gonna I'm gonna do a, a giveaway of, of three copies of the book on Instagram and, and all of that, which I'm really excited about. But I say this like not to blow sunshine up your skirt or, you know, whatever. It's like legitimately one of the best, most helpful, like most honest books I've ever read. It was so good. I feel like I underlined all of it basically. So thank you so much. That means a lot. It really does. Yeah. So anyone out there who hasn't read it, A, I will be doing a giveaway, but if not, (laughs) go read Laura's book. It's phenomenal. Thank you. So when you mentioned that idea of holding on to a secret or, you know, not facing the truth and sort of what that does in the body. That makes me want to pivot a bit and ask mm-hmm. something else that I know you're interested in talking about that part of your sobriety process has been working with the body and learning about how we store trauma and emotion in the body. And I'd love for you to tell me a bit about that and sort of how that has intersected with helping you stay sober. Mm, that's great. Yeah. So uh, where's the entry point for this one? <laughs> so, so I became a yoga teacher long before I got sober. Um, I, but, but before I became a yoga teacher, I've always been very 
physical, like a, a sort of either an athlete or just someone who I, I have used my body as a way to ex- to to regulate my emotional state for sure, but also um, I I knew that there was something to there was something incomplete about the recovery about the recovery modalities that were available because none of them really included the body. And I, over the years, I've sort of learned what that really is beyond just like a suspicion of mine or something. We, we store trauma in the body. We store every, we, we don't just store trauma in the body. We, res, we, we store every experience we've ever had, every emotion we've ever felt, every conversation we've ever had, every place we've ever been, every relationship we've ever been in, every everything get stored and imprinted in the body. And specifically, we, I mean, we're made up of energy, you know, very simply speaking, and we, emotions, emotions, especially get stored in the body, and stuck, so so to speak, uh, when we don't feel them fully all the way through. So a classic example is if if like a animal, say a deer gets scared in, in the wild, say a, it gets starts to get chased by a lion and the deer will either fight, flight, freeze uh, or one of those things and say the lion somehow gets, you know, moves on the deer, say it froze, you know, just to, to become small or to become not moving. Once the lion moved on and the fear was had run its course and done its job, the deer would shake. It would literally shake off the emotion as part of completing the experience of having the energy of fear run through the body. We don't, as humans, generally speaking, complete that process when whether we feel afraid, angry, shameful, jealous, whatever it is, we don't complete that process. Generally speaking, we're not taught to, we don't know that we need to, certain emotions are demonized. There are many reasons why we don't. But what happens in the body when we do that, and this is not even talking about trauma, which is a whole other thing. What happens in the body when we do that is we get sort of stuck. This this energy gets stuck in our tissue uh, and it creates, you know, over years of repression or stuffing or numbing because alcohol has interrupts that process for sure. That's why the so, sort of folklore is not really folklore that when we start drinking, we stop maturing or we start doing drugs, we stop maturing. It's because we actually do because we aren't completing this emotional process. And that creates disease, it creates uh, physical problems, but it also creates emotional issues, right? If you imagine that you just continually stuff things into a bag, there's only so much it can contain before there there are problems. The bag gets holes in it or the things come out sideways, uh, you know, through holes in the bag or rips in the bag or, or it just becomes blocked. So that's a very rudimentary uh, description of what happens, but it's very real. And, and trauma just very quickly changes the way that we process things. And so it almost creates this scar tissue that prevents that process from, from that emotional process from happening and, and distorts our reality. you know, that's another very blunt, brief way of putting it. But all of that leads to someone who cannot properly regulate their emotions. And that's not just a sort of mild issue, right? That's an extraordinary issue that affects every area of your life. It affects your relationships. It affects your work. It affects Literally, there's not an area of your life that doesn't get touched by that. Um, 
which can lead to a lot of stress and problems and pain. And, and it's this, this, this snowball, right? Effect. So when we get, when we engage the body, sobriety is one thing, um, cause it'll stop that numbing process. And then all of a sudden people start feeling feelings and all that. But what it also does is, uh, when we, when we engage the body is there's a somatic release that starts to happen. And I don't, I don't believe that you can really heal fully until you incorporate the body. And that can be done in all kinds of ways. Uh, but the, the, it, it, healing is incomplete without that. I, I really, I, I see that with my own eyes. When you, you can do a bazillion hours of talk therapy, it can be very useful, but it only goes so deep. And what we know too about now about say, I don't know if you're familiar with EMDR, but like there are certain things that you just can't access because they are so subconscious with just talk therapy, right? You have to do somatic work to get, to get that done. And so that is sort of the, my experience has been, has just proven that over and over and over again. Um, yeah. Yeah. Can you um, give an example of what that like somatic healing has looked like for you personally? Sure. Um, yoga is a, was sort of my in, way in, and it was long before I became sober. I knew that there was something to it. And the reason yoga works the way it does, um, it, it, you know, maybe more effective than other sort of exercises is because it does the the mind body connection and breathing. Breathing is so effective for so much of this. So in regulating the nervous system. So yoga, but also like just physical movement, any physical movement is beautiful. I mean, we are animals. I know you get this and and I would say probably hiking has been one. It has, I, I would imagine I'm not the hiker that you are, but I would imagine a large component of your healing has been the movement aspect of hiking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And it's hard to, you know, like explain, but our body is like, there's this beautiful Nietzsche quote of the, your body holds more wisdom than your deepest philosophy. Like our bodies, we are animals that this, this, we live in these beautiful animals that are so wise. And um, if we start to become attuned to them, they tell us really what we need to know. So to answer your question, what has it been like for me? You know, yoga has been a big part of that. I, don't, I do a little less yoga now, but that was really critical for me. I mean, I think at many points it sort of saved me, but I, I'm a runner. Uh, I also, I play beach volleyball now. Um, I paddleboard is like my new sort of, it's like going to church for me. I swear. It's so fucking awesome. And um, anything that the other thing about, about the body stuff is you, it forces you to be present. Right. And, and it gives you a break from the, your mind, which can drive you absolutely batty because if you start to over identify with it, it's like, this isn't a great place to live a lot of times for me. So there's that. And it's also, you know, that there, there's a very real scientific uh, truth to, to what, the endorphins that get produced when you are physically active and, and how that works is a stronger antidepressant than anything that can be manufactured. So that's what it looks like for me. Uh, physical movement is a absolute non-negotiable for me. And I understand that different bodies have different capacities for that and abilities for that. Um, breathing alone is an excellent and the most effective way that we can do this body work, believe it or not. Um, and that, that's what yoga is in and of itself is breathing, learning to breathe. Mm -hmm. So anyone can do that. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. So I guess like sticking with this more tangible, I guess, like track, I know, well, 
I, I shouldn't assume, but for me, right, like being able to stay, like feeling like thriving in sobriety, it's not just one thing. The answer to like how to stay sober for me, it's this like intersection of a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that the same is true for you. Obviously, you just talked about the body-based side of it. Will you name what you think some of the other, use the word non-negotiable, right? Like what are some of the other things that if you had to like, you know, attribute your strength and sobriety too. And and maybe that those things are different now than they were in year one, right? Sure, um, they are. So, yeah. and, and potentially I'd be interested in kind of like a, here's what it looked like year one, here's what it looks like now, but really um, those more like tangible tactile things. Yes, yes. Um, it does look different a bit than it did in year one. In year one, I was just trying to literally not drink, right? And And there might be some people listening who need that to the permission to just go like I wasn't meditating and doing yoga and you know like I couldn't I had no capacity for that it for me it was drink a lot of water get eight hours of sleep and I did try to move my body a good amount and community like recovery community whatever wherever you find it those were my non-negotiables that's how I got sober stayed sober. Uh, now it looks different. I I'm not, uh, the threat of drinking every day. I don't even think about drinking anymore, but sobriety is so much more than not drinking. You know, not drinking is not a replacement for drinking because eventually we get to the stuff underneath that caused us to want to numb or, you know, our, our, our stuff, our stuff underneath. And so now for me, the non-negotiables, I still have those. Uh, I still drink a lot of water. I sleep is like religious to me. I don't mess with my sleep, but I don't think I don't have to try for those things anymore. Right. I take them very seriously, but I don't have to make an effort for them. So the non-negotiables are something more like I still move my body. That's very non-negotiable for me most days, but, but creativity is very important to me in whatever form play is very important to me. That's one of the things that I I've had to work really hard actually to cultivate, but play just for the sake of play. Right. And, uh, what was the other one I was going to mention? Oh, uh, Oh, mental health. I, I am in therapy. I take that very seriously. And I, um, and I stay very connected to recovery community still. So mental health is, is very huge for me. Like that, has been something that I needed and have needed throughout was, was help with that. But my capacity for that has grown, you know, over time. Yeah. I I appreciate the distinction that you made of at the beginning, like the only goal was not to drink. Right. And like Mm. whatever, whatever made that that possible. Yeah. Yes. Like it took that. Like I want people, I I really want to be clear about that because even if you aren't, you know, you wouldn't qualify as say an alcoholic or something that it still takes a lot. It's a, it's a significant change, right? It might be very easy for you not to drink. Like I know for you, it wasn't that, you know, like the, the not drinking was like, okay, I'm just not, but there were the, the sort of ripples in your life, those were challenging, right? So it's enough to just not drink for like, for me, it was like for two years, that's what I was trying to do. Anything to not drink. Yeah. And the reason that I really appreciate you reiterating that is it's similar to what we're talking about at the beginning of the conversation of like, what you get better at the thing by doing the thing, right? You learn how to do the thing. Your capacity mm-hmm. expands as your capacity expands. There can be room for, you know, more thriving when maybe it was more survival mode before. And the fact that right. it is a process and I think it can be really uh, overwhelming to stand on what feels like the starting line or the threshold, you know, mm. of a change and to look yes. at someone who's six years, 10 years, 20 years down it, or however many steps ahead. I feel the same is true with starting a business with any of these things where it's like, totally. Oh God, that means Writing I'm going to have to have, right. Right. Or like if I, you know, I'm going to start a business, I need the business. I need a podcast. I need a newsletter. I need social media or, you know, whatever the things that, you know, that, that was just off the top of my head, but that, 
it's really easy to blow the thing out of proportion or to look at what the thing looks like after many, many years of building and forget that that's not the first step. And then it doesn't have to include any of the things other than whatever it is that you need to do what is the most important thing for you. And if that's not drinking, then like, I don't know if what somebody needs is to like watch Netflix all night long, right? Or what? like I think about some of the things that I have done at periods of time that were hard. It was essentially like replacing this. I mean, this is what running was for me. I quit drinking and became a runner on the same day. And it was complete transfer of, let's say, obsession, right? Or, and I don't really run like that anymore. And I don't need it the same way. And, but I, I mean, I had to, that was, that was my way out of the hole. Absolutely. And, and that it's, that's the way change happens, right? Like people, it is the, the best way to stop yourself is to think that you should be further down the line than you are. And also it steals the joy out of every single step. Like it, cause the, the steps along the way can be extraordinarily joyful. Like I'm making it sound because it was very difficult, very, very difficult, but when I let myself be at point A, I was able to find joy in that place, right? I wasn't, I I was able to find joy in every step. Yeah. I also think that there's a difference between what is actually hard about something and then the ways that I make it harder Yeah, with like whatever the stories are that I'm telling myself. Like one of my favorite questions that I come back to all the time is, you know, what if this were easy or can I let this be easy? And sometimes the answer is no, like you said, like sometimes it is hard, but like if it, if it is a level 10, why do I have to bring it up to a level 12 by comparing myself to where I think I should be or whatever the story is like looking for, I don't know, like looking for an easier path or like creating pockets of ease within the hard thing. Yes. It's such a beautiful way to put it. I learned this really fascinating neurosciencey thing recently that I'll just drop here because to me it was so helpful. And I think you like it too. Andrew Huberman is this, he's been on uh, a few big shows in past months, Joe Rogan and Rich Roll and some others. Uh, he's a neuroscientist at, at Stanford and he uh, has, this, he talks specifically about why stress, certain types of stress on the brain are actually good. And the part that I keyed into was he talks about neuroplasticity, which is your brain's ability to learn and change in and sort of grow new tracks or make new tracks. Uh, it happens very naturally when you're a child. It's like you don't have it. You, you watch kids and you get that, right? They just soak things up like a sponge and they don't have to work hard at learning new things. Their brains are still forming. As adults, that's not how it works. Neuroplasticity requires a lot more stress and agitation. And the stress and agitation is a prerequisite for learning something new and changing your state or your brain. And so many people stop at the agitation stress phase because it feels terrible, right? And So even your process of making something harder is probably the thing that you go through before you are able to ask yourself the question, could this just, could this, could I find pockets of ease here? Mm -hmm. Right. So for me, that was like, oh, okay. Okay. That allowed me, still allows me to experience discomfort of change and growth in a different way that makes it feel possible. And like, it just is, you know, it's not that I'm stupid, or I can't, I don't get it, or just, I don't, you know, I'm I'm struggling more. It's like, that is the debt, that is the prerequisite for change. Mm -hmm. To, To me that it's, maybe that's obvious to people, but it wasn't for me. It, it was very helpful. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, so I think that's a good place to start to wrap up, unless there's anything that hasn't come up so far that you really wanted to make sure that we touched on. I don't think so. All this stuff is, I love, I mean, I could talk about this for so long, but no, this is great. Will you just quickly share um, a little bit about the Luckiest Club and what you offer? Yes. So the Luckiest Club is a sobriety support community for anyone who is interested in exploring uh, seeking sobriety. And, 
I started it in the, as a result of the pandemic. Uh, so it's relatively new, but which is so fascinating too, because it feels like this full blown adolescent. <laughs> um, we offer 22 meetings a week now, multiple meetings a day. Uh, and a private member forum where people can talk to each other and get support and share and laugh and all those things. The meetings are non-denominational in recovery. We accept all paths to recovery. We have people in AA. We have people who've never been to a meeting in their life. We have people who have no idea what a sobriety group would even look like or sound like. And um, the meetings are all held online on Zoom. Uh, the member forum is off Facebook. We also have a thing called TLC Academy that uh, offers learning. So all subjects like things that we're talking about today, right? Like neuro neuroscience uh, of addiction and personal development stuff. I, we host a couple of master classes a month and a group coaching call with me. So it's very simple. Um, love it. People love it. It's to me, it was like what I was looking for when I went to get sober. Uh, and it didn't exist. So yeah, that's the deal. It's $14 a month for the, for TLC, that's the community and then $40 a month for the Academy. So, you know, with the, with all those meetings every week, it's equal something like 13 cents a meeting, which is, which is pretty cool. Um, and you can, yeah. yeah. I love that you created the thing that you wanted, right. Or that you were craving. And, um, one of the things I've heard you say, I, I think in relation, um, to, the luckiest club is that the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection. Yeah. And I love yeah. that that idea of like finding your people, finding your place, something that we talked about when you were on the show the first time of like finding a place where the truth is told, you know? And yes, so, yes. yeah, I love that. I'll put a link to that in the show notes for sure. If you could leave folks with one small call to action based on our conversation, what do you think that would be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I think that question of am I free um in 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 just your air just your life you know where am I where am I could I be a little freer is a really beautiful question to think about you know maybe write about when you wake up or if you are a meditator to meditate on or if you're you know going for a run where could I be a little more free is one of my favorite questions yeah, it's such a good question. So what's the best place for people to find you and say hi? Do you have a particular favorite way to connect with new folks right now? I am on Instagram. That's my favorite place. And the, the Luckiest Club is linked for my bio there. So that's the best spot. Uh, my website is lauramccown.com, but Instagram is my favorite sort of social media spot. Okay. And yeah, I will put that in the show notes also. And then on my Instagram, I will be doing the book giveaway uh, when this episode comes out. So yes, people who are interested in winning a copy of the book can go there. Laura, thank you so much. Thank you, honey. And that's our show for today. Our music is by Adam Day, who also handles our sound editing. Thanks, Adam. You're the best. And huge thanks as well to every single member of our Patreon community for making this honest conversation, this entire podcast, and so much of my other work, like my twice-weekly personal essay newsletter called Good Question, possible. Your monthly funding allows me to keep creating resources and gatherings for folks who crave honest conversations, both with themselves and others. And I fully believe that these conversations can change our lives, our relationships, and our world. To join us, just come on over to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. Our community operates on a shame-free sliding scale, so you can feel good about supporting this work from within your own means. So I'll see you over in the Patreon community, yeah? And until next time, I want you to know three things. First, that you are enough. Second, that you are not alone. And third, that I'm totally rooting for you.